Welcome to Waco Watch, the podcast. I am Dawn here with Winston Partners, Danielle Williams, and Mike Tomasulu to discuss the VLSI technology versus Intel trial in Waco before Judge Albright. So Mike and Danielle, let's pick up where we left off, starting with VLSI's last two witnesses of its case in chief. Um, what happened? The first witness was Dr. Murali Anavadam. He is a professor at University of Southern California, uh, down here where I live. And in fact, my it's my law school alma mater. His testimony was designed to present the, basically, he, was, he used Intel's own testing tools to try to quantify the uh, uh, alleged improvement in performance that, that the Intel accused chips enjoyed for their alleged infringement. In other words, this doctor, Anavaram, was trying to say by using Intel's own, own tools how much the uh, Intel products benefited and do it in a quantitative way rather than in a qualitative way. In other words, saying it's they saved X amount of power, this amount of performance. So that was the point of his testimony. The other witness was Dr. Ryan Sullivan, who is the damages expert for for VLSI. So we could, we, if you like, we could kind of break down those two witnesses. Yes, let's break them down, Mike. Um, but, but sticking with um, first Dr. Anna Varam, um, what happened during the cross-examination of this witness? So the, the, keep in mind that some of this information is only being shown to the jury. So we don't sitting in the, for the, for the, you know, to protect Intel's confidential information, we don't get to see everything. But what it seemed to me was that Dr. Anavaram, there was two main points in the cross. One was that even though there were, you know, 10 families of chips accused of infringing each patent, so a total maybe of 20 families of chips accused, each of them with many, many chips in each family, maybe even thousands of accused products, he tested only a handful. So that was one of the things. In other words, he just didn't really test, uh, you know, comprehensive. And then the other uh, thing that that the, that was tried to come out and cross was he didn't test the right things, and so they, uh, for instance, he tested products that didn't include the accused chips. That was something that came out and cross. It's not really clear to me whether that was correct or not, but that certainly came across to me listening to the cross examination that there was potentially some confusion that Dr. Anavaram had not tested exactly the the sorts of things that he should have tested. And then the third point that they tried to make during the cross-examination was didn't really test um, in an apples-to-apples way. And the analogy was if you came up with an improvement that increased gas mileage of a vehicle in fifth gear only, a Ford, a Ford F-150 in, fi- in fifth gear only, then you wouldn't test it in fourth gear or third gear or all the gears to determine the performance that's associated with the improvement for just the fifth gear. And so that the the analogy what they were trying to make is that um, you know, he he didn't he didn't test the right thing. And so those those were the main points of the cross examination. And I think it certainly left me feeling a bit confused as to whether Doctor Anavaram's testimony was reliable and that he had actually tested the things he was supposed to test. So Mike, you mentioned that the second witness was Doctor Ryan Sullivan. Could you give the highlights of his testimony on direct examination, as well as on the high and key points on cross-examination. Yeah, sure. So Dr. Sullivan presented the VLSI damages case. 
And so he explained, you know, sort of the, there was, there was, a, you know, the expected testimony about who he is and, you know, what type of uh, expertise ha he has in this area. And then he explained that he had done something. He had taken Dr. Anavaram's performance uh, results. In other words, the, the numbers generated by Dr. Anavaram about the supposed improvements that Intel enjoyed from allegedly using the patents in suit. And he fed them into his um, damages calculation. And he, he basically took several numbers. He took what one of the things he took was this. He did a regression and it wasn't exactly clear what, what he meant by that, because, again, a lot of the slides are confidential. But he did did something called a regression. And then he took the um, performance factor and then he calculated the supposed revenue the increased revenue from Intel's supposedly beneficial use of these patents. In other words, he he did a complicated analysis to try to derive the, the benefit, financial benefit Intel enjoyed from the use of these two patents. And then from that number, he allocated it as between Freescale and Intel, which would have been the two parties to the hypothetical negotiation. And what he said was that it was about, about 70 to 75% of this additional revenue would have gone to Freescale. And so that was his reasonable royalty calculation. And then he further took it down and, and basically did some math by dividing it by the number of accused units to come up with a per unit uh, royalty. So Mike, how was this attacked during cross-examination? So it was, it was a... It was attacked in several ways. Um, one of the ways it was attacked was uh, he said, you know, if Dr. Anavaram's testimony is wrong, then your testimony is wrong. And he said he basically got Do Dr. Sullivan to agree that if uh, if Dr. Anavaram's he doctor, he got Sullivan. Sullivan to agree that the inputs that Dr. Anavaram provided were, you know, a critical part of what was exported. So if Dr. Anavaram was off by 10%, then his numbers were off by 10%. And if Dr. Anavaram's results were unreliable at all, then then he doesn't have a damages number. So that was one of the main the main attacks. Um, the other main attack was that dur during Dr. Sullivan's opening testimony, he said that the extent of use by Sigmatel and Freescale and NXP, you'll recall that that's been a big theme for Intel is that these these players, um, the patents are not really stars. They're not important. They had played no role at, at Sigmatel, no role at Freescale, and no role at NXP. And in his direct examination, Dr. Sullivan said that's really a red herring. And he, he said, consider Patrick Mahomes and Tom Brady. You know, their full value is you, you determine their full value by looking at the extent of their career, not where they were drafted or what their original contract was. And so on cross-examination, um, Bill Lee said, well, isn't it true, though, that you know, once Tom Brady's potential was learned, the Patriots put him in the game, right? And so if you want to compare Tom Brady to these patents, these patents have never been in the game. They've been sitting on the bench, and, and, and there's a reason for that. And so that was one of the, you know, kind of, I think – uh, an easy to understand cross examination uh, point where basically he took he took the analogy and turned it right around on its head. So it's again, I guess Danielle and I have talked. We don't really like analogies. I know that that, that, that in webinars and things like that, Judge Albright has said he thinks analogies can be you know used against you as well. Right, but this one I don't know whether it just fell into 
Billy's lap, or it was uh, something that he had been thinking about based on prior conversations with, with the folks um, throughout the throughout the litigation to be able to, to put this one forward. But it certainly did resonate to me the, the distinction that he was trying to, to make here about the utility and, and value of the patents, that this would be the first time that anyone had been put in a position to, to license them or, um, or the first time that the patents had been... The, First time the, the value of the patents have been tested. Yeah, so there, there's just really an aspect of this case is that these patents don't have a lot of um, external indicators of value. They don't have in you know a, a, a particularly compelling inventor story. You know, the inventor was a good testifying witness, the one inventor who did testify, but even he, you know, he didn't remember the patents. He didn't remember his patent when he his deposition was given. He hadn't read it. He certainly hadn't been, you know, running around and, and you know, proselytizing and advocating that his patent had solutions that were pertinent today. He continued to work as an engineer. There was no evidence that he himself you know, believed in this solution and tried to employ it. Um, the fact is that, you know, there's no evidence that there's been any publications or articles written about the patents. There's really nothing that, you know, lends excitement to these patents. And I think what we're going to hear from Intel's damages expert is that they weren't sold for very much money either, that ultimately VLSI did not pay very much for them. And, you know, so there, that puts Dr. Sullivan in a difficult position. He's trying to justify an astronomical number, $2.4 billion for two patents that, you know, the, the, the inventors couldn't remember, the inventors didn't proselytize for, that the prior owners of the patents didn't use and that probably VLSI paid next to nothing for. So I think all of those are difficult facts. And, you know, that, that, that led to Dr. Sullivan's, you know, analogy that, you know, did, it did get whipped right around on him pretty badly. I thought. Yeah, it'll be, I'm looking forward to the the hearing from Intel's damages witnesses on Monday. Uh, So I guess we've got the, the former, uh, licensing person from IBM, as well as their damages expert. And it sounded like from Dr. Sullivan's t- testimony that Intel's damages expert also ran a regression analysis. So it'll be, it's interesting that they both elected to use that approach. Um, I'll be interested to see what uh, what the number is from Intel's damages witness. One of the more important things I thought about the cross-examination of Sullivan that was also um, pretty, pretty well done, uh, in terms of like, you know, being relatable was that Dr. Sullivan couldn't name a single patent license that had ever used this technique that he used to value the reasonable royalty against Intel. In other words, he made this thing up just for this particular, uh, patent license. It's not something that had been used in any real world situation. And that's part of Intel's real world problems, real world engineers, real world licenses. That's their whole kind of one of their main themes is like real world products, real world people, real world licenses. I I think that that's a fundamental issue with the damages construct in patent infringement cases. And if your challenge is to get at the value of the inventive feature, then you've got to get at the value of the inventive inventive feature. And so I can, we can, say, well, this has never been, this has never been done. And that that's probably true because nobody goes around doing a Georgia Pacific analysis when they were trying to license patents because it's, I'll, I'll refrain from 
from showing what my view is on, on Georgia Pacific, but it, it just isn't something that people go around doing. So, of course, there's going to be some imagination, creativity for the damages case on both sides. The, la the last point maybe to make about the cross before we move on to um, Intel's case in chief is that I thought it was odd. Dr. Sullivan said that the, you know, the, the amounts, um, the fact that, that, you know, Sigma Tel, Freescale, and NXP hadn't used them was, he said that was a red herring. And then Bill Lee showed him factors eight, nine, and 10 of the Georgia Pacific factors. And so he said, look, those things basically directly say it's not a red herring. And the, um, there was a pretty testy exchange, uh, frankly, a bit remarkable where Ryan Sullivan said to, to Bill Lee, you know, you know, come on now that, you know, we both know that that's not a fair question. And the judge sort of jumped all over him and said, you know, you got to answer the question. Yes or no. It's not your job to comment on the questions. And it, it, it definitely did not show Ryan Sullivan in the best light. It's possible that that could have offended a juror. You're directly and personally attacking the uh, cross-examining witness. That could be how it came across. I'll be interested to see, because I, I noted that exchange as well, but I was will be interested to see how uh, it's handled um, on an Intel's case in chief, um, because the the factors are there. They don't have, you don't have to have all of them. Um, I think that it is a little bit extreme to talk about it in the context of a, of a red herring, but we'll see. I'm, I'm looking forward to the closing arguments on Monday to see how they bring all of this together. Cause I do think that there was a lot in the, in the Sullivan, uh, examination, uh, to use for, for closing if, if that's what Intel chooses to focus on. Um, so I, I look forward to hearing the closing arguments as well, Danielle and Mike. So we've been inching around the topic. Let's jump to Intel's um, case in chief. So Intel's case in chief began last week. Um, what were the, the highlights so far? So I think to me, it continues their real world theme. Uh, they started with the face of the company uh, person and, you know, he talked about Intel and how many people work there and, you know, the kinds of products they make and, you know, kind of help the jury understand what Intel really is. And then there was a lot of engineers that had worked on the accused products. Again, it, I think that the point is, is to say, look, these are the real world engineers that build these things. These are the people that know the most about it. And that, that did continue the um, theme that we saw in the MV3 versus Roku case, where if you're going to put on an engineer to talk about technical things, you have to be very careful to show that that engineer does indeed have personal knowledge of the subject matter and not is not starting to freight uh, drift into a opinion testimony, uh, and, and Intel's, uh, team did that successfully. So then they put on their non-infringement expert, um, and then their invalidity case. Their invalidity case was based on something, another real world Intel product called the Yona project. And that is alleged to be prior art against the 759 patent. And so that was presented again through real world, the real world theme. They brought on the engineer who had created the Yona project, and then they put the invalidity expert on. And they they ended on Friday with, I believe it was still crossing the, the, valid, the invalidity expert. Yeah, that's right. They um, they finished uh, Friday still in the middle of his uh, of his cross-examination. So I think they'll, they'll resume with that on Monday. And Danielle, I know that you listened to a good amount of uh, the testimony through the remote feed. What, what could you get a sense of, you know, whether the testifying engineers were, you know, perso uh, I guess, helping personalize Intel as a group of engineers and not, not as just a, a large, wealthy company? I thought the uh, the witness that was talking about the Iona project, 
uh, did did a nice job of, of personalizing personalizing intel. Uh, and then there seemed to be testimony in in his cross examination as well as the cross examination of the of the invalidity expert around uh, whether whether the product had controllers and whether it had a certain kind of controller and i i wasn't able to discern from the remote feed what the what the import is of that but i i expect that i'll be be hearing more more about that in closing argument so the other interesting thing continuing with our our theme of of, of analogies being used maybe in a way that um someone didn't predict i thought Morgan Chu's cross-examination of the invalidity expert where he was talking about the invalidity expert's analogy about a request. And the, the, the analogy had been something like this, you know, a, a request is something that, you know, if you were, if you request the check, um, you know, that means you verbally ask the waiter or server for the check. And, but just the, if the waiter comes by, and sees that you're done eating and all of all of the materials have been cleared from your from your table that's still not a request for the check and so morgan said that you know well so what about this let's say you somebody's out they they've dropped their silverware and they state they tell the waiter i've dropped my silverware is that a request for more silverware um and the expert agreed that it that it could be considered a request for more silverware even though it wasn't a request specifically it was a statement of condition and so it was an interesting cross uh again the uh, you know the analogy I, i don't really appreciate the significance of of the cross examination in terms of the entire case because so much has been under seal but it was an interesting cross and um so lastly i guess let's just say that everything's going to finish up finish up on monday so it's going to be a very full day monday right Dawana? right mike i look forward to hearing about the testimony and closing arguments on monday um it was great speaking with you and danielle as always so tune in next time thanks mike thanks danielle thanks Dawana. take care bye-bye bye